Well, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, I decided to try to cover a whole chapter for the first time in Revelation, which maybe midway through the week, I thought, I had second thoughts about attempting that, but this is a smaller chapter, and, um, and I think it makes the most sense to, to cover it all together. So we're looking at 11 verses, Revelation chapter 10. And you may recall as we were working through the, the seals, between the sixth and seventh seal, uh, there was this interlude in chapter 7 where John was, was given a vision of the church militant, the church on earth, um, and then that, was, that vision was followed by a, uh, um, an example or an illustration of the church triumphant, the church in heaven. So it was sort of a, an example of the, the church gathered for battle array, prepared for the spiritual warfare that we face in this life, but also a, a vision of the hope that we have for eternity, right? to be gathered around the throne of God, singing his praise. And so the saints on earth are promised protection from the harm of the judgments uh, that are, that are uh, coming upon the earth in the form of these seals and trumpets. And then they're given that vision of, of the future reign in glory. Well, uh, following that same pattern, we have another interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet in Revelation. Uh, this interlude transitions from what we've been talking about, these demonic forces that lead up the spiritual forces of evil that were unleashed during the fifth and sixth trumpets to this scene in heaven where John is prepared uh, and is prepared for the vision of the final trumpet. Okay, so during this preparation, he receives more words of prophecy that he is then recommissioned to proclaim. And then in verses or in chapter eleven verses 1 through 13, it provides uh, another vision for him where the church is seen as a witness throughout this age. So John and the church have an important role to play in the, es- in the, the timeline of eschatology, the timeline of these last days. John's testimony of his vision in Revelation, the whole book, prepares and preserves the testimony of the church. It's part of why he wrote it. And that's what he explains in the introduction, that it's meant to be a blessing to all who read and obey what, what the vision tells us. So while the judgments of this, uh, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are taking place, the vital witness of the church is also taking place. Right? The, there's this mean, it's the means that God uses to preserve his people and to gather in more. Right? The, the witness that we share, the proclamation of the gospel that we give is God's means of protecting his people, strengthening, strengthening them in the face of persecution, but also of, of growing his kingdom, growing his church in the face of that persecution. So the focus of chapter 10 is primarily upon John's role, but that doesn't mean it has nothing to do with the church. We should just wait till chapter 11 to get the application for us. No, of course, when we understand John's role and the commission that he received are relevant to us as well. We remain in a position of anticipating the second coming of Christ. In a sense, we still are anticipating that seventh trumpet. We're in that same place that he is right now. 
And, and so the same commission that he has been given has been given to the church to, to be faithful, to proclaim the truth of his word uh, in the face of a generation that either rejects it or accepts it, right? Responds to it in faith and repentance. And so we remain in that position. And in the meantime, this passage, it teaches us, I think, three ways to strengthen our faith as we await the blast of the final trumpet. And so as we consider the impact that this vision has upon John, we'll relate that to how that same impact that it should have upon us. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even challenging passages like this one, Lord, that cause us to think, that cause us to, to really ask questions of the text and to wrestle with it and struggle with it and to depend upon your spirit, Lord. We do so once again. Every time we open your word, we depend upon you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, to soften our hearts that we might respond in obedience to that truth, Lord, that we might be uh, convicted of this truth and and, and be willing to share that with others. Lord, help us to be faithful, even as John was faithful to the commission you gave him. For your glory we ask it, in Christ's name, amen. So read with me, Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there will be no more delay, but that that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, as is typical of of my sermons, we'll break this passage down into three sections. We'll have three points there if you're following along in your outline. Our first one is confirmed by the display of God's power, confirmed by the display of God's power. We'll see this in verses one through four. So we begin with this angel, this mighty angel coming down, right? The power of God is displayed by this mighty angel. He's majestic and overwhelming in size 
and brightness. Notice he's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire, and he's coming down from heaven. This is already the opposite of what we've been seeing in the other seals, that these locusts that were coming up from the abyss, this angel is coming down from heaven. We already know this is not a, a fallen angel. This is an image of, a, of, a, of someone from heaven. Right? So the combination of symbols remind us of the vision of the Son of Man. You see many parallels with that vision described in chapter 1, verses 7, and, and then 14 through 16, as well as the throne of God in chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, so this is no ordinary angel. He reflects, I believe, divine power, glory, and the splendor of heaven. And so think about these, each attribute. The, the cloud speaks of the divine presence. The rainbow speaks of God's mercy. The sun speaks of his holiness. And fire speaks of divine judgment. Now, in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord was most likely a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. You can go back and listen to those to that the sermons wherever the angel of the Lord appeared. That was the case I tried to make there. Is that oftentimes, uh, when when it's a, a theophany, an appearance of God in some physical manifestation, uh, it, it's called the angel of the Lord, right? And and I believe that that's a specific reference to the second person of the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Now in Revelation, it was the Lamb. We also made, that makes a, a very clear connection to Christ. It was the lamb who was worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And that was found in chapter 5. And now we see the angel holding an open scroll in verse 2. Right, the, um, actually, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, chapter 5, I, I was right. So in chapter 5, we notice that the lamb, it says, remember the, the mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven on, or on earth or under the earth was able. And then later on in verse 6, it says, the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, he went and took the scroll. So this scroll that was, was in the possession of the one seated on the throne no one was worthy to take, but the lamb could, was worthy, was found worthy to take the scroll. And now we see this mighty angel, giant and magnificent, and displaying all the glory and splendor of heaven, standing with a scroll. I mean, it, it's very hard not to connect it to chapter 5, right? It, even though the phrase here is little scroll, and there it was scroll, you actually have the, the word being used interchangeably because in verse 8 it says, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll. It doesn't say go take the little scroll. There it says go take the scroll. And then earlier, so earlier on it's talking about the little scroll. So you know it's, it's, the word is being used interchangeably here. So in all likelihood, it's either the same scroll from chapter 5 or possibly a, like a smaller version of it. But it might also just be small because it's in the hands of a giant angel. And so now it looks like a very little scroll in perspective. And so this, um, this angel 
or the, the word angel literally means messenger. And I think the angel's role is to serve as John's messenger. It's bringing him fuller revelation. So I actually agree um, with Greg Bill and Joel Beakey and, and several other scholars who see this as a theophany of Jesus Christ. Right? Um, there are some who would say, well, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Here it's talking about a mighty angel. It doesn't seem to, you know, it seems like you could just talk about the lamb again that came, right, and, and, and descended. And that's a valid argument. It, it could just be a, an angel who's representing Christ, but there's a very clear, strong connection to the description of the Son of Man in chapter 1, right? The face shining like a sun, uh, the rainbow that surrounds the throne of God. So I do believe this is a theophany. Uh, I think that's the best way to um, explain this passage. But all the components of, of deity are present here. And then again, Christ is, is pictured by the mighty angel's domineering presence. Notice one foot is on the land, one foot is on the sea. That doesn't just mean like, you know, you go to the edge of the coast there and you, you have one foot in the, in the ocean and one foot on the land and, and, and therefore you're, you're essentially depicting the same thing. It's talking about this mighty being who's, who's basically covering everything. Right, who, who puts his feet upon the places that are his. Right, he, is, he is all authoritative. He is all powerful. That's the description of, of this being here. And, and it's emphasized three times. Notice there in verse two, he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Verse five, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand. And then go down to verse eight. Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. It's, it's emphasizing over and over again the dominion that this angel possesses. He possesses universal authority over all creation. Now, of course, this, this is in reference to Jesus Christ. Um, upon Christ's resurrection, he received all authority in heaven and on earth, as he said to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18. In Daniel's vision, you have the Son of Man ascending to the throne uh, of the Ancient of Days, who receives dominion that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. And so we see even more allusions to that same, the fulfillment of that vision in Daniel in verse 11 here, right, where we read, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The idea is that the authority that this angel possesses is being transferred to John. That authority is being given to his church, who is represented by John. Right, so that's the connection to us, right? We have been given this same authority and dominion to go out and to proclaim Christ, right? And some will reject it, but others will turn and repent. So the angel's roaring voice informs all the inhabitants of the earth and leads to the sounding of the seven thunders in verses three and four. And the loud, he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what, what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So the angels uh, roaring like a lion, and then that leads to this sounding of seven thunders. Both of those images refer to judgment. In scripture, you can look at um, 
Amos chapter 3, verse 8, where God roars like a lion in judgment. Um, in Exodus chapter 9, verses 23 through 34, God sends thunder upon the Egyptians in judgment. Uh, you see something similar in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, where God sends uh, uh, thunderous judgment upon the Philistines who were uh, preparing to attack Israel in that passage. But John was told to seal up what the thunder said. And we all want to understand this. We all want to speculate. What did the thunders say that we cannot understand and hear? Why would it be sealed? Why in the book of Revelation are words still being sealed? Daniel was told to seal the words of his book. Again, this does seem to be an allusion to Daniel. He was told to seal the, the, the words of his book until the time of the end when they should be revealed. Some of that is being revealed and fulfilled in the book of Revelation, but some of it is still kept. Some of it is still sealed. And these words are to remain a mystery to the readers. But here's the thing. They do ensure that God's plan has been established. We see here that, that it has been set firm. It's not as if God's just writing the story as we react to him. And he's, he's not really aware of what's going to happen. Just because he keeps it sealed from us and because it's a mystery to us, at least the words of, this, of the, the thunder, uh, doesn't mean it's a mystery to him. Right? We should have every confidence that God is sovereign and in control. And everything is working out according to his plan. And so this vision reflects the Christ that all mankind must come to know. Right? Christ will descend in fiery judgment, but his shining face and then the accompanying rainbow remind all creatures that grace and mercy are available through him alone. All right, so this vision provides John with a, a visible expression of Christ's authority. Uh, when we know God is all-powerful, we are confirmed in our commitments to know and follow him, even though we don't have all the details. We don't know what that means for us. In fact, we are told to prepare for persecution, to prepare for, for challenge and suffering. Right, so the content that has been sealed up should not cause us to question God. Rather, we are pleased to know whatever our sovereign Lord has chosen to reveal to us. And so the confirmation that John received from the display of the divine glory and power then encouraged him in this second section to be confident in the fulfillment of God's mystery. Again, that's the second point of your outline, to be confident in the fulfillment of God's mystery. We see here in verses five through seven that the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the angel takes a, a typical posture of giving an oath with his right hand raised to heaven. And sometimes prophets uh, raised both hands, but the meaning is the same. Right? Daniel saw a man 
in chapter 12, at the very end of Daniel, he sees a man who raised both hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever. It is almost the same wording here as you find in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. The John makes further allusion to this same passage in Daniel in chapter 12, in, in the next chapter of Revelation. Uh, and so it suggests that what we are finding in Revelation is the fulfillment of what left Daniel confused. Right? What was leaving Daniel confused and uncertain and, and where it, it concludes with, him, with it saying, Daniel didn't understand. And earlier on in Daniel, it talks about him being uneasy, almost being queasy about the vision. He, had, he just was, was so confused by it. But here now, we are, we are given some answers. This is beginning to fulfill the vision that Daniel saw. So this mighty angel in Revelation swore by God that there would be no more delay. And this too is consistent with a divine quality, right? God can do no better than to swear by himself in establishing his covenant promises. And if you look at how he establishes the covenant promises with Israel, um, Throughout the Old Covenant and into the New Covenant, it is dependent upon his faithfulness to us. He is essentially swearing by his own name, the promises that he's given to us. Especially you see that in the illustration in Genesis chapter 15, and it's confirmed as well by the interpretation of his promises in Hebrews chapter 6. But according to verse 7 here, the days of the final trumpet would fulfill what was announced to the prophets. And the word announced there is, in fact, gospeled. What was yuan galidzo? It was, the, it was gospeled to the prophets. It was the good news that God proclaimed to the prophets and then the prophets shared with the nation. So the prophets literally proclaimed the good news of Christ's first and second coming. However, the, the primary focus of its fulfillment here is on the, the bitter news of God's judgment upon those who reject the gospel message. Right? And, and that's why it's, it's, it's a shame when the church does not share the full message of the gospel, when we shy away from words of judgment, because what has been given to us is the full proclamation. Right? It's, it's not up to us to decide what parts we, we, we're not comfortable saying. Right? We must talk about sin. We must talk about judgment. And you cannot read and preach Revelation without doing that. So the first six trumpets have not shown us uh, the consummation of God's redemptive history, but the seventh will do that. We are seeing the same pattern that we saw in the seals. This is another cycle tracing events that cover this present age between the first and second coming of Christ, uh, where the the final trumpet um, marks the final judgment. So the language here of, of mystery doesn't mean that, that, that it's a, a subject matter that's beyond our comprehension um, or that only particularly gifted individuals will have the ability to perceive it and then they, we must go to those gurus to understand something more about the mystery that's being proclaimed here. No, it's, it's, it simply refers to the detailed understanding of redemption that was obscure in the Old Testament but was made clear by Christ and the New Testament. And so it's the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. It's it's the mystery of God's redemptive will that has been set forth in Christ. 
according to Ephesians chapter 1. So the revelation of the gospel should, should grip our hearts and strengthen our confidence in God's sovereign plan. All right, we have seen the partial fulfillment of that plan, of those promises that were given to the prophets in Christ's first coming. And that exhorts us to further patience in awaiting the final and full consummation of those promises. So the seventh trumpet, as explained here, will be the fulfillment of the prophetic promises of God's final judgment and salvation. Once again, we see that you cannot simply read Revelation as a, as a chronological timeline that traces one event after the next, and it's just going to all work out in, in, in that same timeline. No, it's a, it's a cycle of events because it starts in, in covering this entire present age, and then it leads up in each cycle to the final judgment, to the second coming of Christ. And so the one who, who lives forever and ever, as we read in verse 6, one who lives forever and created all things is certainly capable of accomplishing all his holy will. We learn the, the mystery of that will in the whole counsel of God's word. All right, that, this is what grounds us and guards us against worldly thinking. And so as we think about this, as we think about the confidence that we should have in the mystery um, of, uh, of the fulfillment of God's mystery, I mean, um, as we think about that, I think the application for us is that the church needs to be wary of cultural fads, right? That should not be what guides us. Obviously, it's the word of God that keeps us firm and grounded. And I want to take a moment here, something that I don't typically do, which is to address some things that, that the culture likes to highlight and that I believe has begun to impact. And if you've read any, of, uh, any news, um, you, you know it's begun to impact the church as well. And some of you have even asked me where we stand on various hot-button issues. So it's important that we don't shy away from answering those questions. I think most of you know that we have stood firm as a denomination on issues of gender and sexuality issues, but there are still some concerns right, surrounding this Revoice conference that took place in a PCA church in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, we took some positive steps to address that, I think, at this year's General Assembly a couple months ago. And I believe that more will be done at next year's gathering um, but I want you to know, as, a, as the leadership of this church and, and as the representative of this church at the General Assembly, that I have voted and will continue to vote for a very decisive and corrective action upon those churches and any churches that, that would be in agreement with that direction for the denomination. I, um, others are concerned that the church has adopted social justice issues that are influenced by secular ideas. And so critical race theory and intersectionality have begun to infiltrate the church. And some of that might be going over your head. If you haven't heard that language, you can certainly look it up. Um, but these are theories and ideas that have no business guiding how the church addresses, addresses racial reconciliation. And I want you to know that as, a, as the leadership of this church, that is where we stand on that, on that issue as well. And there was an ad interim committee last year, not this year, but the year prior, uh, that addressed racial reconciliation. 
and they presented a report to it. So it was two years ago they were commissioned, and then they presented a report. And I talked a little bit about that report. Um, you can read it on your own. But I will say some of it uh, is good. They do reject outright intersectionality. And yet they don't really say the same thing about critical race theory, from, from, from what I've read at least. Uh, and so that concerns me. And there's a little bit of the, of the article, the report, that is confusing and I think needs to, to be addressed further. But these are things I want you to know that the leadership of this church is paying attention to, and we want to make sure that at all times we are grounded in Scripture, that we are not listening uh, to the winds of doctrine that the culture pushes down our throats, right? that we want to be grounded and, and firm upon the truth of God's Word. And so we are in a culture war, and too often the church fights as if we've already lost. Right? We have just sort of give up that ground. And we say, well, let's, let's huddle up then and let's hide. No, but this passage, it reminds us that our hope doesn't lie in a transformed culture, right? But in a Savior who transforms. And our, if our confidence rests fully and finally, finally upon him and his word, then we will not be swayed by the latest secular agenda because it is going to change all the time. But God's word stands firm and it remains true now and forever. Right, so when confirmation is coupled with confidence, we can be convicted by the proclamation of God's prophecy. And so we conclude in verses 8 through 11 with that last point, convicted by the proclamation of God's prophecy. There in verses 8 and 10, and, and I've got to make this a little bit quick, but God instructs John to take the scroll from the angel, and the angel instructs John to eat the scroll, telling him it would be bitter in his stomach and sweet in his mouth. And then John eats the scroll, and it's just as the angel told him. Right? It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. This is a very clear parallel. Every, every scholar agrees this is a parallel with Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Right, where the prophet is told to eat the scroll of God's words of judgment, and in his mouth it was sweet as honey. But then later on in the passage, it's, uh, as he begins to proclaim the words of that message, he is received with rejection. Right? The people don't want to hear it. And so it has a bitter effect upon the prophet. It doesn't specifically say that his stomach became bitter, as it does in Revelation. But the idea is it, has, it, it does use the word bitterness. It, has, it, it turns his heart bitter. And then Jeremiah had a, a similar experience of eating God's word in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. The, the taste there was initially delightful to him. However, as soon as he began to proclaim the words of prophecy, the people rejected him, and Jeremiah also became bitter. And so the sweetness of the little scroll implies the delight that Jeremiah experienced, but the bitterness implies the scroll also contains words of judgment and suffering that are always going to be difficult to proclaim, right? The church must faithfully preach the gospel truth even when they know it will lead to persecution of various kinds, right? Even when they know it will not be received, even when they know it will fall upon deaf ears. That is what John was called to do. He would have to continue to prophesy, it says in verse 11, about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And in fact, I think it might be better to replace about with the word against. Uh, looking from in, in the original, it's, it, it's an option to, 
to, to use either word, right? That, that's a valid interpretation of the, of the word that's used there, about or against. And, and it seems to be in the context here that it, it would make more sense to translate this, that he was told, you must again prophesy against many peoples and nations and languages and kings because it was a word of judgment. So John's commission was a challenging one and requiring John to eat the scroll which contained the final proclamations of God's plan ensures that he is thoroughly familiar with God's word and it brought him to a right conviction about their truth. That's that's the illustration of what, what he's doing here. Apart from that firm conviction, he would not have the backbone needed to withstand the pressure. And so if John had to be convicted by the message he was commissioned to proclaim, then his audience is meant to be convicted by that same message. Like John, we ought to be convicted to proclaim this message to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. No one is too far off or too high up for the gospel to have an impact and meaning for them. This passage convicts us to know God's promises to the point that we will not be tossed around by every wind and wave of false teaching. The fifth and sixth trumpets warned us of of spiritual warfare that doesn't just occur out in the corrupt world, but that also infiltrates the church. And so let us possess that Berean-like diligence in reading and studying the scriptures to see if what we hear is true. And when some teaching veers off course, let us hold fast to the truth with full conviction. Let us not only prize wisdom, but let us prize lives that reflect the Christ who provides us with that wisdom. When we feed upon the word of God, may we seek the Spirit's help to plant the word deep into our hearts, even as we sang earlier, where it will take root and bear the fruit of transformed lives because we've been confirmed, convinced, and convicted by the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.